Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season December 9th with two performances of its annual Christmas concert at Walton Arts Center. Performing a mix of holiday favorites under the baton of maestro Paul Haas, musicians will also be joined on stage by the Sona singers and other guests. Tickets at 443-5600 or sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, November 9th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellams. And I'm Timothy Dennis. Thank you so much for being with us today. Up first today, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is delisting 21 species from the Endangered Species Act because of extinction. The ivory-billed woodpecker was expected to be delisted, but as Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports, the bird was issued a temporary stay of extinction. Flocks of black-and-white feathered red-crested ivory-billed woodpeckers once soared through ancient old-growth forests of the American Southeast. Loggers, hunters, and specimen collectors, however, vastly reduced the species in the 1800s. The last official recorded sighting of ivory bills occurred in 1944 in the Tenzas River National Wildlife Refuge in northeast Louisiana. In 1967, ivory bills were declared endangered. Matt and Lauren Cortman of Monroe, Louisiana, coordinate expeditions to locate and protect the iconic birds. We've organized Mission Ivory Bill. It's uh, an informal organization, which we set out as a five-year program to, to document the ivory bill. Mission Ivory Bill deployed in 2021 after U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service proposed declaring ivory bills extinct due to a lack of clear photographic evidence of their existence. Cortman, however, claims to have not only seen a pair of ivory bills, he's recorded what he believes to be the bird's unique Kent call. This audio captured in northern Louisiana in March 2017. Mission Ivory Bill leads field searches in northern Louisiana, South Arkansas, and western Mississippi. Teams silently explore targeted habitats clothed in camouflage and wearing binoculars, carrying cameras, and autonomous recording units temporarily placed on trees to detect the bird's presence. We use ARUs to try to uh, locate areas where, where they're nesting overnight. So we're looking for that golden hour where we hear the ivory bill call. Matt Cortman, a former federal law clerk, is an avid birder who served as Louisiana's Ornithological Society president. He hosts free virtual boot camps and seminars with top ivory bill experts in recent years focused on blocking the federal extinction declaration. The concern that it would lead to fragmentation of the ivory bills, bottomland hardwood forests. So again, that would be sad in and of itself. It also could lead to the functional, to, to the extinction of the ivory bill woodpecker. Instead, Mission Ivory Bill search teams aim to provide empirical evidence of ivory bills, the first such proof since 1944 in flight, pecking on decayed tree beetle larvae, or peeking out of carved tree trunk nesting cavities. And Mission Ivory Bill, we, we certainly would acknowledge that uh, we don't yet have, and no one has a magazine cover quality photo. We seek that, but the, probably the only way you're going to get that is to find an active cavity. And so for us, we're actually very, we're very concerned that we don't want to chase the birds out. So for instance, one of the issues is, do you have what's called forcing behavior? So in other words, do you simulate the ivory bills call or knock to bring it in? I was always concerned about that because we we don't know, we know very little about the ivory bill. Let's start with that. So again, I'm concerned about techniques to draw in the birds. The difficult thing with the ivory bill is it's in remote areas. So it's really more a function of your ability to navigate in the outdoors and swamps. Cortman speculates ivory bills have adapted to human incursion by migrating to increasingly remote bottomland forests to avoid being killed. In 1880, there might have been two types of ivory bills, loud ivory bills and quiet ivory bills. By 1915, um, because their numbers were absolutely down by that point, there were probably only quiet ivory bills. Cortman's field research was recently cited in a peer-reviewed article on ivory bills published last May by National Aviary Project Principalis in Ecology and Evolution. Starting in 2012, the authors spent a decade exploring mature bottomland forests in northern Louisiana, 
logging visual encounters, installing trail cameras and AI audio recording units. A drone video taken in October 2022 caught two ivory bills in flight landing on a tree branch. A national aviary spokesperson in an email for this report said conservation of the ivory bill and its habitat can be accomplished if the bird remains on the endangered species list and not declared extinct. That's the sound of an ivory bill Kent call, courtesy Cornell Lab of Ornithology, recorded in 1944. Coordinated searches for ivory bills by Cornell scholars, the Nature Conservancy, along with federal and state agents, traced back to 2004 to a place called the Big Woods on the Cache River National Wildlife Refuge in east-central Arkansas, where seven independent sightings had occurred. That's also where a University of Arkansas Little Rock professor and electrical engineer, David Luneau, while paddling through a cypress swamp, captured a video of an alleged ivory bill taking flight, flapping off through the forest. Here's whispery audio of Luno's encounter with the bird, followed by a bit of commentary posted on a Mission Ivory Bill webinar in July 2022. So what happened after this for, for the next, I don't know how long, minute, two minutes, three minutes, something like that, we, we listened, we, we kept the camera running, the bird took off through the woods and in fact, we were turning in the direction it, it flew off. You could actually see it for probably seven or eight seconds, just became a dot eventually. Mission Ivory Bill's Matt Cortman credits U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Regional Refuge biologist William C. Hunter with confirming the bird's existence in the swamps of Arkansas. Those findings detailed in a 2010 Ivory Bill recovery plan. He did a great job in analyzing the arguments for and against the Arkansas rediscovery evidence. And he unambiguously found in favor of the evidence showing that that was an ivory bill woodpecker. Cortman also acknowledges U.S. Department of Interior Secretary Deb Holland for her tacit role in preserving the elusive ivory bill and by extension its ecologically valuable forest habitat. The ivory bill, I can tell from my research, is the only organism that's protected under the Endangered Species Act that requires large, unbroken tracts of bottomland hardwood forest. So the concern is that if the ivory bill were delisted, then the federal property uh, that contains bottomland hardwood forests might be fragmented uh, for timber rights. To verify the existence of ivory bills, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service conducted a five-year species status review completed in 2019, resulting in a recommendation to declare the bird extinct. That was followed by public comment periods in 2021 and 2022. In the end, the agency found that possible sightings of ivory-billed woodpeckers are inconclusive or are misidentifications. A final ruling was expected to be issued on deadline last spring. Finally, on October 16th, the agency delisted 21 species from the Endangered Species Act due to extinction. Ivory bills were absent from that list. We queried U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about how long it will take to issue a final determination. We were told no new deadline has been set at this time, nor has the 2021 Ivory Bill Extinction Declaration proposal been withdrawn. Federal wildlife staff scientists in the interim will continue to analyze current and incoming evidence leading up to a final decision on the fate of the majestic ivory-billed woodpecker. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. This is Ozarks at Large. Thanks for being with us. Saturday is Veterans Day, and there are several commemorations scheduled around the state. This morning, Veterans Healthcare of the Ozarks hosted a ceremony, and schools and other organizations are planning many events during the next 48 hours. We're going to spend some time with one veteran today, Dale Benedict. Dale grew up north of Columbus, Ohio. He's a dairy farm, actually diversified farming. I would milk cows in the morning before going to school, then at night afterwards. But we had uh, crops that we raised, and uh, uh, cattle, sheep, um, 
both beef cattle and the dairy cattle. Fast forward. He moved to northwest Arkansas in 1972 from Boulder, Colorado. And now, at age 92, he remembers that first day in northwest Arkansas well. He says he was on his way to land he had purchased near Tawnytown when he was stopped on Emma Avenue in Springdale. Because there was a big parade coming on, and I didn't know what was happening. This was in July, and our first week in July. And I was told, after I inquired of some other people who have, were stopped also, what's going on? They say, well, this is the rodeo of Ozark's parade. We could spend an hour with Dale talking about what it was like in Ohio in the 1930s or what it was like to move to northwest Arkansas in the 70s or what it was like to be the founder of Biotech Pharmacal in Fayetteville. And honestly, I kind of did. But our topic today is what it was like for Dale to travel to Washington, D.C. on a recent honor flight of the Ozarks trip. Dale was in the Army and served in the Korean War. Honor flights take veterans to D.C. to see memorials erected for service. Dale's friend Liotri nominated Dale for the flight. First pass, we were un- unsuccessful. It was, the flight was full. Uh, but they are very good at what they do, and they followed back up with me, saying that the next flight was available, and they would love to have Dale be on that flight to Washington, D.C., along with his daughter, Hope Benedict, um, as his guardian. Hope, by the way, is also a veteran, having served in the United States Air Force. These flights are free for the veterans. This one took off from Springfield, Missouri, early. Dale says he and Hope arrived there about 1.30 in the morning to be able to take off with other veterans at 3.30 in the morning. It was an early departure, but he says an enthusiastic send-off. Music being played, um, there were singing, there was shouting. Uh, people, as we came into the building, people would rush out and grab our hand and say, thank you for coming back, and say, welcome back. And it was, it was awesome. The honor flights are a whirlwind to and back from Washington, D.C. in a single day with guided tours of memorials in Arlington National Cemetery. Dale says it took four tour buses to shuttle the veterans with police escorts leading the way. Only a day. But Dale says the vets from every branch of service quickly bonded. Very moving. Uh, Well, to be with other veterans and their wives and other members of the family and, and to get together and to share the thoughts and feelings and um, then to go into these memorial service and Hope and I help, help helping one man who had been weeping, um, but he could not find on the Korean where they had a large um, surface area where there were names were engraved, and he was looking for the names of his buddies who lost their lives in the Pacific Theater. And so we helped him find them, and there were so many, it was not that easy. And he says there was something else, both on the way to and on the way back from D.C. The person who was leading the group said, we have something that is very important to all soldiers. Mail. Of course, that's true. Mail call daily was a big thing in the lives of all of us. And so... He gave us, everyone on board received a a package, that package, uh, more like that, and loaded with letters from all the way from lower grades in school to high school to relatives to um, employees of the company from which I came, uh, and people in the community, schools, from other schools around the area. It was amazing. He says it's difficult to pick a single best highlight from his trip, but he does recall the group pausing to take in the Marine Corps Memorial near Arlington Cemetery. It's a recreation of that famous photograph of the United States flag being raised on Iwo Jima. We spent a little time spent time there just thinking of it and seeing and taking some pictures. But the idea of, of this is a remembering of the effort, the loss of life, to get to the top of Mount Fujiami, Fujiyama, where they finally erected the flag. And you think the cost uh, to get there. And this happened repeatedly throughout the Pacific and, of course, in the European theater, both theaters. It just, the loss of life on both sides, on both sides. It's horrible, horrible. Hope it never happens again. Army veteran Dale Benedict talking with me recently about his trip with Honor Flight of the Ozarks. This 
is Ozarks at Large. Time now for today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. J.B. Hunt Transport Services and BNSF Railway have expanded their partnership with a new intermodal service called Quantum. The companies announced details on Tuesday. Intermodal comprises the use of rail and truck to complete freight shipments. Carriers have touted Intermodal as a service that can reduce carbon emissions and costs when shipments are converted from over-the-road truckload to Intermodal. J.B. Hunt executives recently said Intermodal can help shippers reduce carbon emissions per shipment by as much as 60%. According to Tuesday's announcement, Quantum customers can expect up to 95% on-time delivery service, approximately one day faster than traditional intermodal service. We've got that story up on our website, and you can read more about it at nwabusinessjournal.com. We're back with more news after the break on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas, and it shows in your banking experience. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Technology firms around the world are constantly vigilant to criminal elements looking to scam, steal, and damage you personally, financially, and in your business. Fortunately, one of the top tech firms in the country is headquartered here in Arkansas. In a recent interview, Roby Brock spoke with the CEO of Mainstream Technologies, John Burgess, to learn more about the latest trends. You have been at a, an aerospace conference. I won't ask you what the acronym is or how to define it all, but the state of Arkansas was there. Uh, a lot of companies from Arkansas were there uh, representing the aerospace industry, which is huge in Arkansas. What, um, what was your purpose for being there and kind of what were some of your takeaways from the, the conference? Um, so our, our intent there was that in our cybersecurity unit, we provide uh, consulting and managed cybersecurity services to Department of Defense contractors. Um, going back four or five years, the, the DOD has been rolling out new cybersecurity requirements for uh, contractors. Originally, uh, it was under the, the term NIST 800-171, but they kind of rebranded it and repackaged that as uh, what they call CMMC, or the uh, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. So there's a it's a it's a set of um, controls that any any DOD contractor dealing with uh, controlled unclassified information, so not the top secret stuff or classified information, but um, generally anything kind of pertaining to a, to a, a DOD uh, manufacturing contract typically. So we consult with, with DOD uh, contractors here in the state on this, uh, this compliance requirement. So this, uh, the show we were at with the, the contingent from the state was the NBAA, which is the National Business Aviation Association show. It's a huge trade show. Um, and although business is in the title, there's a, a lot of, of manufacturers, especially here in Arkansas, that they have some private sector business and they also have a significant part of their business that's that's uh, DOD related. What is so the, we were there looking for opportunities. What is the threat that you help protect them from? Where do some of these cyber attacks come from? Is it dark web stuff? Is it foreign countries? Is it something domestic? What, where do the biggest threats come from? What do you face? Well, um, specifically on the, on, the, on the DOD contractors, you know, generally they are concerned primarily about um, nation states, 
you know, that are, that are uh, interested in, in obtaining some of our secrets. Um, but on, on a, just a general cybersecurity basis, it's, it's the nation states, uh, but more, more uh, commonly it's, it's cyber criminals who are, who are interested in, in ransomware or, uh, you know, stealing uh, identity theft type information, PII that they can sell on the dark web. Um, but then it also ranges, a lot of the work that we do ranges with what we call insider threats, which which may be uh, malicious acts by an employee, but can also be um, accidents. You know, someone accidentally um, sends an email with a file to the wrong person, or someone accidentally misconfigures a machine uh, that, that leaves it exposed on the internet. So it's kind of those are the kind of three broad categories we look at. How are um, how are some of the requirements changing? Maybe over the last twelve months or so. Um, I mean, I, this is a constantly evolving kind of space that you're in. Um, without getting too technical, I mean, give me some ideas of 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 what's maybe different from where you were twelve months ago. What we're what we're seeing is is the kind of the best practices or the the actual requirements are are staying pretty much the same. Uh, there's always evolution in that space, but what we're seeing is there's a broadening of uh, business to business uh, requirements. So whether or not you know if if I'm a if I'm a DoD contractor as we just talked about, I'm I may be uh, I may be mandated to follow the CMMC rules. If I'm a healthcare organization, I may be mandated to follow the HIPAA requirements. But what we're seeing increasingly is that uh, if I'm doing business, if I'm a small business, I'm doing business with a larger one of my clients is a larger business. They are imposing uh, requirements, you know, where where we are interconnecting with with a, a larger business or or exchanging data with them. The business, the larger businesses are imposing or including cybersecurity requirements in those contracts. And then a, another big driver the last couple of years has been cyber insurance. So as as uh, claims, you know, from from cyber incidents continue to show no signs of stopping, the cyber insurers are getting a lot more um, rigorous in their underwriting requirements, which include a a lot more cybersecurity requirements for obtaining cyber insurance in the first place. This all sounds like it's expensive and will cost businesses more, which I think in turn trickles down to consumers who are buying products and services. uh, What's your speculation on where things kind of go in the near future, maybe not the long-term future, but the near future, is this stuff that's going to uh, show up in in costs and price for consumers? It has to. And the the sad reality is that this is just a, a net new cost of doing business. Um, I, I I've likened it before to to uh, the Chicago Fire. So, you know, before the Chicago Fire, uh, there were no building codes. Or, or you know, building codes were very spotty and very, very lax. And you could build a building relatively cheaply. Uh, it was, it was, you know, literally made of matchsticks, and and it was very liable to, you know, there was a high risk of of fire or loss from from a fire. But after that, after that fire, that was kind of a wake up call. And over the over the years after the Chicago fire, you saw a lot more building codes come into existence, which greatly lessened the risk of fire or loss from fire. But also really increase the cost of, you know, the minimum cost to build a building. And there is more of that conversation with Mainstream Technologies Chief Executive John Burgess on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. Some of the other headlines this week include news that Jill Wager has a new job as the director of The Momentary in Bentonville. That is the sister organization to Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Wager was part of the museum's founding executive team before it even opened back in November 2011. Legacy National Bank has opened a second branch office in Bentonville. The bank has dubbed the new branch Legacy Landing, and it's at 107 Northwest 2nd Street downtown next to Flying Fish. And the latest issue of the Business Journal is out this week. On the cover, Jeff Delarosa visits with Dr. Anna Daly. She is the chief scientific officer of Fayetteville-based biotechnology company, Namita Lab, which is building on the success of its sole commercial product as it moves on a $20 million Series A fundraising round. 
Also included is 30-year-old entrepreneur Taryn Gates, who has opened two orthotic and prosthetic clinics in Harrison and Bentonville. We also have reporting about a new venture by Diana McDaniel, a key executive at Arkansas Children's Northwest in Springdale, who has left the organization to launch a healthcare consulting company in Northwest Arkansas. All of that and much more are in the new issue, and you can read the digital version for free at nwabusinessjournal.com. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. And this is Ozarks at Large. Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with sound perimeter. In the complex and intricate dance of human connections, love acts as the glue that transcends differences and cultivates unity. It is a common thread that weaves through the fabric of human interactions, bringing individuals together and creating bonds that can withstand the tests of time and adversity. We open Sound Perimeter today with Cancion de Amor, Love Song, the first movement of La Minerva, a violin concerto written by composer Juan Pablo Contreras. Juan Pablo, born in Guadalajara, Mexico, is a Grammy-nominated composer who uses his classical music training and Mexican folk music in his pieces, which have been performed by over 40 major orchestras in the world. Contreras is celebrated as the first Mexican-born composer to sign a record deal with Universal Music, serve as sound investment composer with Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and win the BMI William Schumann Prize. Contreras says about his work, quote, Upon knowing that I was going to write this piece, I imagined the goddess Minerva, also a significant symbol in Guadalajara, holding a violin instead of her shield and a violin bow instead of a spear in front of an orchestra, filling a theater with its sound. It seemed like a very powerful, impactful image to me, a representation that could carry the theme of homage to women. From there, inspiration arose to create this composition, which in my opinion is one of the best I have written. It is a violin concerto, meaning there is a solo protagonist accompanied by the orchestra. Let us continue listening to this tender movement about love interpreted by violin soloist Angelica Olivo and the Orquesta Latino Mexicana conducted by the composer himself from a 2023 live performance and world premiere.
The Duas Cancion de Amor, Love Song, the first movement of La Minerva, a violin concerto written by Juan Pablo Contreras, performed by Angelica Olivo and the Orquesta Latino-Mexicana, conducted by the composer himself in 2023. There is gentle love that develops over time and thrives in simple, safe and comforting spaces. There is also love that consumes us swiftly with overwhelming emotions, creating a state of elation and intoxication when lovers encounter each other. Iranian composer Reza Vali started his musical studies in Tehran, followed by degrees in music education and composition from the Academy of Music in Vienna, Austria, and a PhD from the University of Pittsburgh in the United States. Dr. Valley has been a faculty member of the School of Music at Carnegie Mellon University since 1988 and has received multiple international prizes and commissions. His music has been performed in Europe, Asia, Australia and the Americas and recorded by major classical music labels. Reza Valley composed Love Drunk in 2014 as part of a piece written in four movements, each reflecting upon different aspects of love. Let us listen to it in a performance by violinist Bardia Chiaras and pianist Sana Sadutath. It was violinist Bardia Chiaras and pianist Sarta Sarutek performing Love Drunk, a piece that describes the intoxicating joy when lovers meet, written by Iranian composer Reza Valley. The emotional landscape of love is intricate and multifaceted, encompassing a spectrum of feelings that add to the richness of the human experience. Today in Sound Perimeter, we explore tender and convoluted love as embraced by composer Juan Pablo Contreras and Reza Valley. Find more about them in our program notes. Today is also our producer Timothy Dennis' last day with Sound Perimeter. Tim has been an amazing collaborator who brought his passion and knowledge of music to Sound Perimeter and embraced it with his deep love for music. Thank you, Tim, for all you have done and for our time together. We're going to miss you. This is Leo Uribe, Professor of Music and Associate Dean at the University of Arkansas Fulbright College of Arts and Sciences, expanding our musical boundaries with Sound Perimeter. Sound Perimeter is a show written and hosted by me and produced by Timothy Dennis and KUAF 91.3 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. This segment is dedicated to diverse voices in and around music. I hope it will expand your knowledge and connection to inclusive sounds and let music infiltrate your lives and transform your realities. See you soon. This is a Thursday Ozarks at Large. You've heard me say that many times over the past several years. And then followed by Timothy Dennis and I are in the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio to talk about live music. That's not where we are today, is it, Timothy? It isn't. We're in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio about, what, 30 feet to the east? Sure. 30 feet to the west. Yeah. Excuse me. My directions That's are right. impaired. And we're not talking about live music. Uh, we might mention it, but but what we're talking about is you're leaving. 
This is my last day at KUAF after 11 years. Let's first say what you're going to be. You're going into the for-profit world. I am going into the for-profit <laughs> world. I am going to be joining the team at Sweaty Marketing up in Bentonville. They're an athletics marketing firm. Uh, and they're bringing me on as a junior web developer. Now, this is something you've wanted to do for a while. Yeah, I mean, longer than maybe even you realize, because when I first went to college, uh, when I first came to the U of A mm -hmm. in 2007, uh, the first major I had was engineering, and I eventually wanted to get into software design, like writing code, but... I couldn't pass calculus. <laughs> you were not the first person no, to say that no. sentence. No, uh, And at that time, that was kind of the only route to kind of go into that was to get a degree in computer science of some sort or computer engineering. And so I realized that, you know, I couldn't pass calculus, but I learned that I could write thanks to my AP English uh, teacher in high school, Mary Jo Roberts. Mm -hmm. And so I... Switched to journalism and off I went. You've done so many different things at uh, KUAF and at Ozarks at Large. What stands out to you? Who? I mean, talking with musicians, that mm -hmm. is, that has been my favorite part of this job. Like, and not just talking to them, welcoming them in to showcase their craft, their music, and like providing them a comfortable space to just get, you know, what they're making out there to the broader public. I mean, that's really been the absolute favorite thing that I've done here. And I should point out to folks that um, Timothy really enjoys it. I don't know how many times I'll be here in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, and you'll come over here from next door and say, hey, you want to hear something cool? And I'll <laughs> go over. And it's a session you've done in Furman Garner, or one of the ones we recorded, you know, for our live Roots Festival right. or something. And it just sounds magnificent. Are you going to miss mixing? I am. I mean, I'm sure I will have an opportunity to do it in some form or fashion, but on a little bit more of a relaxed time scale. Because, mm. you know, producing those, I mean, especially when we were doing one a week on Ozarks at Large, like sometimes I would have a band in, you know, weeks ahead of time, but sometimes I'd only have like a day or two to turn it around. And so, I mean, I'm looking forward to when I do get to do it, having the luxury of more time to give it, you know, more thought and to do it upright for lack of a better way of putting it. All right, I've got three days of your tenure here that, I, that come top of mind. <laughs> Number one, I think it was the second year we did a Live Roots Festival. Mm -hmm. I was in the Walker Community Room at the library, and someone, there were signals crossed and someone didn't show up. Yeah. And we had to fill out the hour. Mm -hmm. It was, the, I think, the second hour? Yeah, but... If this is the one I'm thinking of, mm. we weren't live for the second right, hour. Right, but we wanted to have a second hour's worth to play later. Right. And um, someone wasn't there, just didn't get the message that they were supposed to be there. And you remember what happened? Joe Crookston. Joe Crookston, who had already played on the show, bounced up from the back of the, the, the room. And gave an amazing, incredible performance. Like, before that day, I didn't know who Joe Crookston was. I mean, he wasn't even on my radar at all. And he just blew us away. And mm -hmm. then I think it was later that day he played his set at George's. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely packed to the rafters in the front room. Yeah. And I mean, again, one of the best performances I've ever seen. So energetic, so warm, and just great stage presence. Yeah. All right, that's one day I remember when, okay. when you were a principal. Another one uh, was the day that the Amazium opened. Yes. And it was all hands on deck. Uh-huh. You remember uh, Christina Carnatz, right. Antoinette Grajeda, and Sarah Birmingham right. went up there to broadcast live. Mm -hmm. You and I were back here. Right. And it was this wonderful mix of live and pre-recorded and some technical difficulties. Yeah. I remember they got up there and getting a phone call saying, hey, the Comrex, which is our device that allows us to broadcast remotely, it wasn't turning on. So I had to walk Antoinette through like how to reset it and like crossing all the fingers and toes, making sure that it would actually work. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, we put all of our beans in this pot. And we promoted it. It was a little bit hairy. But, you know, cool heads prevailed. And while, you know, Antoinette and I were troubleshooting and diagnosing, Christina Carnatz was going out, collecting sound from, you know, just walking around the Amazium. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, by the time she got done with that, we had it working. She was able to feed it back to us. And, 
yeah, it just turned out so, so well. Probably my favorite day of producing this show. I remember it was all over. We'd gotten through it. They had done wonderfully up there. It had worked here. We just gave each other a big high five. That, yeah. that was I, – I have a special memory of that. But my favorite day, we couldn't give each other a high five because it was during the pandemic. There was a day uh, – Susanna Sytek – I'm saying all these names who are gone now. Susanna Sytek, <laughs> I think, was in Benton County. Antoinette mm-hmm. was in Washington. I was in Baxter County with my right. mom at the hospital. Um, you were – At I, home. At home. Jacqueline was filing from somewhere. We were getting – material from the Roots Festival folks. That's right. So we're in like five or six different locations. Yeah. None of us in this building no. got the show on that day. Yeah. And that was a feat of just being organized and knowing what was going to happen and just having plans A through D, you know. <laughs> and luckily we never got to plan D, but, you know, I'm just – that really does amaze me. We were able to pull that off, and it sounded you know, good. So, see, I'm going to miss those things, doing those things yeah. with you. Well, you know, one day that sticks out in my mind that you and I were together up in Bentonville the first day of the Momentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went up there <laughs> and had several interviews slated. And I, you interviewed, what was it, FM Belfast? Yes, from, from Reykjavik. And also Mary Lattimore. You interviewed Mary Lattimore <sighs> as well. With her harp. And we recorded a little bit of her playing in the fermentation room at right. the Momentary. The first music we think was ever played there. Yeah. Definitely the first music that was ever recorded there. Right. Because, I mean, this was the day of the initial opening, like, for, you know, invited guests and stuff like that. But still that. hours before that even happened. Exactly. I mean, they were still there were still people running around finishing mm-hmm. things, making sure it would be ready. And what sticks out to me about that day is we were up there. We were told, you know, Courtney Barnett wants to talk to you. Like, it's all set up. We get up there, though, and there was some difficulties in her getting herself and all of her equipment to the momentary. And it kept getting pushed later and later in the afternoon. And eventually, like, she was there. Her guitars were there. And, like, we had this great conversation. It was only, like, eight minutes long, but she was – in the moment, we I was in the moment, and it was just beautiful. It was. I, I got a ringside seat to that to see the two of you talking, and that, yeah, that was a highlight for me, too, even though I had nothing to do with it other than just sitting there. All right. Now, you a couple things that we need to clarify. You said this is your last day at KUF, and it is. It's the last day you're going to be in the building, and you also mentioned that you love talking to musicians. Right. Well, tomorrow on the show, you will be on the show with yes. your last piece. Yes. Uh, so... I had kind of had the idea months ago of bringing in some of my favorite local musicians for my last show when I had already kind of decided that, you know, it's time to move on. Mm -hmm. I was making plans to go into this new career. And, you know, I thought about it and just kind of forgot about it. Then after I gave my notice here, I remembered and I just started texting people. And so I'm amazed I was actually able to pull it off by assembled probably what I would consider the best super group of local (laughs) musicians in the local area right now. Uh, I was able to get Eric Whithans and Meredith Kimbrough from Lost John and Mother Mary in the Black Dirt. I got Dylan Earl in. I got Lee Zodro from Basement Brew and Lost John and Dylan Earl and the Reasons Why. And then Dana Louise, Dana Idlett, she joined us as well. And it was just an amazing session. We're going to hear most of that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We're going to hear a little bit right now. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you to, to, to do the intro. First of all, thanks for everything. Thanks for coming over here when I would say, hey, <laughs> my computer's not doing something right. And there would always be folks, this sort of shrug, not upset with me, but what is it now? And you almost always could fix it in the first few minutes. And I, knew if you, and I knew if you couldn't, it was uh-oh. Yeah, it was an uh-oh moment. Yeah. But I will say thank you, Kyle, uh-huh. for you know, giving me an opportunity when very few people would, you know, 11 years ago. Thank you for bearing with me, you know, through many ups and downs, both personal and professional. And just thank you for allowing me to have fun and like do what I enjoy doing. All right, folks at Sweaty Marketing, make it fun. Make it fun. (laughs) It's work, but make it fun. Uh, Well, thanks for being here. And uh, best, best of luck. And um, why don't you tell us what we're going to hear? So this song... It's actually been performed in our studio before. It's by Dana Idlett and Meredith Kimbrough. Uh, Sometimes they go by Ladies Night. 
And this is their song, Teeth of the Day. That was Meredith Kimbrough and Dana Idlett, who sometimes perform together as the group Ladies' Night. That was their song, Teeth of the Day. We'll hear much more music from inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. And Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Paul Gatling, and Leah Uribe. Today's show and today's sound perimeter both produced... One last time by Timothy Dennis in the Herald and Blanchcock News Studio. All right, Timothy, um, thank you for the past 11 plus years. Hey, thank you for allowing me to be here the last 11 plus years. And uh, best of luck and the next round on me. Thank you. And for one last time, for Ozarks at Large, I'm Timothy Dennis. And until tomorrow, I'm Kyle Kellums.